Maureen Chiquet is the former CEO at Chanel. Portfolio Magazine credited Chiquet with transforming Chanel into the single most valuable fashion brand, which grew to a reported value of $6.2 billion under her leadership. During an Ivy Ideas Night in New York City, Ms. Chiquet shared insights from her journey to success in the entrepreneurial and fashion worlds, revealing how to harness hard work and passion to create a career you love, accomplish your goals, and grow a company at the level of Chanel. What I always tell, certainly people early in their careers, really think deeply about why you do what you do. I mean, what is it that you love about what you do? You know, beyond the title of the job and the role that you play, what's like, what makes your heart sing? She also discussed her new book, Beyond the Label, Women, Leadership, and Success on Our Own Terms. Please enjoy our conversation with Maureen Chiquet. You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com. This episode of the Ivy Podcast is brought to you by Verst. What if WordPress, Google Analytics, and Medium had a baby? That baby would be Verst, the first and only website platform built for the unique needs of professional publishers. Hailed by TechCrunch as the blogging platform with all the optimization tools you need, Verst makes it easy for you to design, manage, and optimize your website. No plugins, coding, or professional help needed. You can even harness the power of machine learning to help you get more signups, purchases, or whatever your business relies on. Anyone can try Verst free for 30 days, and Ivy Podcast listeners get an extra 20% off their first two months with code IVY. Additionally, the first 10 Ivy listeners to sign up for a paid membership will also get a personal design consultation with Verst. It's so good to have you here, and you've had this tremendous career. I had to just say that in like 10 seconds, but Thank it you. doesn't just casually happen, right? And uh, what I really want to begin with is your story. So how did you find your passion, and how did you get into this industry? Yeah, well, um, it all started with goat cheese. Um, <laughs> I, I know that sounds strange, but it's the truth, because when I was just about 16 years old, I fell in love with everything French. I mean, the, the sound of the language, the culture, the beauty, everything about it. I just, I wanted to be French. And so I asked my parents, could I go on one of those programs where you get to stay with a family? And I did, and it was in the south of France. And my senses just burst open with beauty. I, I became completely enamored with the culture, with the way that they took beauty in, the way that they appreciated it and took the time to really, really love it. And so I couldn't stop going back. And it turns out that that was really what got me, in fact, my first job. It was that love of France. I ended up going during my semester abroad as a junior. 
I met somebody and I and made a connection. And you know, sometimes you go, well, this is just luck, right? And there is part of luck in there. But part of it is wanting that so badly. I mean, after college, I would have swept floors in Paris. That's how badly I needed to be there. And in fact, I, I had a couple of other opportunities. One in particular, which was ironic, I got um, an offer for a PR firm. Now, for anybody who knows me, I am almost, I'm socially awkward. So for me, this would have been a real disaster. Um, but, it, but it turned out that I, in, that part, in that way, because of the connections I made while I was there, I was able to go back and get my first internship at L'Oreal. And then how did it develop? So you were interning at L'Oreal. How did then your career trajectory take you to Chanel? Well, that's a, that's a really long story. Y'all want to hear it? <laughs> no. um, so um, I, w I was at L'Oreal for three years. I went through their rigorous training program. They send you out on the road for six months and you know, sold their stuff out of uh, the trunk of a car with a little mallet, you know, the little suitcase that the French use, the VRP. Um, and, I, and, and it was an amazing program. And it was there that I met the man who's in the front row, who is my husband, my ex-husband. Um, and <laughs> let's give him a round of applause. <laughs> hey, you know, I, this is the true. This is a true e Hollywood story. Um, but also when I, it's true. But when I was at L'Oreal at that time, and this is the '80s, and you have to remember, this is you know the, a really different world. But there weren't a lot of women at the top, and. I really loved what I was doing. I, I ended up in marketing. I got my internship in marketing. And I had studied film as literature. And I loved looking at imagery and understanding how that created emotion. And so here I am in marketing, and I think this is a perfect fit. This is what I want to do. Um, except for I just didn't see a lot of women executives at that time. And it turns out Antoine had another offer. We ended up moving to the west coast of the United States without jobs. This is the kind of thing that you do, I think, when you have no obligations and no, no, um, no, no, no family yet. So I was really convinced that I had this label now, that I'm a marketer. So I went looking for marketing jobs. And really, there were only two companies that had product management type jobs, Clorox, and I think it was Del Monte at the time. And I could not see myself taking, you know, being on photo shoots of toilet bowls and ketchup. And just, I mean, it just didn't seem like the right thing. And I was walking down Market Street and I saw these po this poster, and this poster was of Miles Davis. And I had loved jazz, I had learned to love jazz when I was in France. Head in his hands, this soulful look, and he's wearing a black t-shirt and it says Gap. I'm like, wow, Gap's cool again. Because when I left, Gap was really not cool. Um, and I went to some of the stores and I liked the clothes again, and so I thought I'll just send my resume. And sure enough, I got a call back, and that started my 15-year career in The Gap. Now, I thought I was a marketer, right? I wanted to market The Gap, only they didn't actually really have marketing then, they had advertising. So they said, you're a merchant. I said, I'm a what? And I mean, really, I was so naive. And they said, no, you're a merchant. And what merchants do is they work with design teams to create products, and then they figure out how much to buy, where to source them, and manage them once they're in the store. So I said, well, that's cool, I love clothing. I'll give that a try. So I ended up being a merchant and following that, I was a merchant for six years at The Gap, eight years then, um, actually after the first six years, I got a little tap, tap, tap on the door and this woman named, amazing woman and mentor named Jenny Ming said, um, listen, we're gonna start this new business. We didn't, it didn't have a name, but we need to, we, we feel that there's a market, an underserved market for people who don't have either don't have the, the money to buy Gap clothes or don't want to spend the money to, to buy Gap clothes. And this is before the Target, Target renovation. It's before H&M and Zara and all those different brands. So I thought, at first I thought, 
wait, I want to be in luxury, um, even back then. But, but, but um, I thought it was really kind of compelling to take the skills that I had and to actually extend them to a different market. I mean, I loved good quality products. I love good design, and so I thought, this is, this is cool. If it doesn't work, I don't know what's going to happen, but it could be really big. And sure enough, five years later, well, Navy was already $5 billion. I think it was one of the fastest growing companies ever at 800 stores. So from Old Navy, um, I ended up going to Banana Republic. Um, but in the meantime, while I was at Old Navy, I got a very mysterious call from a headhunter. In fact, he first called me, and it was a headhunter that, who, whom I'd known from the Gap. He called me to go run, Ameri or to do something in merchandising at American Eagle. And I said, you know, I'm at the Gap, and Gap at this time was the center of the universe. It's like, you know, I, I, I really don't want to move to Pittsburgh. I, I don't know. That doesn't sound right. Call me if you really have something that I can't refuse. And sure enough, three months later, he said, I have something you can't refuse. It's for a privately held luxury company. And so there, that's how I ended up getting to Chanel. Long story. Amazing journey and excited to dive into what happened next. But on this topic, so there's a lot of us here um, who are still navigating where exactly to focus our energies in the long run. So the question of finding your passion is a recurring one. Yeah. And how do, you, how do you balance you know, what you're passionate about with you know, what might be good for your career? So if you were to give a specific piece of advice on when it comes to deciding what to do with your life, what would it be? Yeah, you know, well, I, you probably know from the book, and for those of you who have read it, I don't, I'm not a really good advice giver. I like to tell stories, and I like to ask a lot of questions and share observations. But, here, you know, my observation is this. Passion, we often think of as a job type. So people go, I'm passionate about the fashion business. And then you ask them, so why? What, what are you passionate about? And they have a hard time saying or noting anything but the glamorous industry that it is. And, in fact, when you're working in fashion, by the way, it's a pretty hard job. I mean, I started at Gap cleaning sample closets and doing this archaic sheet called the Open to Buy that we did with pencil and erased it because that was before computers. I know, it's making me really old. Um, but um, I, I think, for me, it's really asking yourself deep questions about what you love and what you can't not be around. I mean, for me, I knew that once I got to San Francisco and I realized that Maybe, and by the way, I didn't even get, I got interviewed for Clorox and they turned me down. They said, you don't have a business background, so forget it. Um, but I knew that I love beautiful things and I love the idea of beautiful things and creating beautiful things. And so I didn't really know how that would be, become a, a job, but I had to stick with that and know that I was going to keep with that. So is that, is that a passion? Maybe it is, but I, what I always tell certainly people early in their careers, really think deeply about why you do what you do. I mean, what is it that you love about what you do? You know, beyond the title of the job and the role that you play, what's like, what makes your heart sing? Okay, so really finding what you're most passionate yeah. about. Yeah, and then, and then I think combined, and this was another thing, I, I, a question I always ask, I'm still in this question, by the way. I pretend that these are old questions for me. They're actually not. I'm still in them. But, you know, what do I love? What makes my heart sing? For example, right now, I loved writing the book. It was a lot of fun for me to express myself in that way. And then where can you make your best contribution? Where can you make your mark? And then what, what situation are you in? I mean, what kind of situation do you want to create? And does that situation allow you to touch into the thing that you love most and make your mark where you think you can best do it. Absolutely. So you got to Chanel, right? And you loved France. So this was your chance to be now in a French brand. Right. Um, but the world has a way of you know, not giving things easily. that easily, right? <laughs> Indeed. So you got there. You're an American in this French company. 
Um, what were yeah. the key challenges? Well, the, I, I guess I should, you know, keeping on with the, the story theme. So I got to Chanel, and first of all, the, the owner said to me, listen, um, you know, you don't know anything about the luxury industry. You don't know anything about our, our culture, um, our heritage, our business model. So um, we're going to send you to France for a year, and you're going to just listen and learn. And I thought, a year? And at first, you know, I was like, wow, this is cool. I've been working really hard. I mean, I was a very hard worker, and Antoine could, could attest to that. But, um, so I thought this was pretty cool. But after about three months, I was going crazy because they said, basically, you're going to put a piece of tape on your mouth, and you're not going to make one decision for all that time. So I visited factories. I've, I went around the world to our different offices, our boutiques. I looked at, went into creative services. I actually ended up knowing more people than, than I think anyone in the company by, by the end. But um, it was that, the first challenge was actually shifting my mindset. And I'd say the second thing is I came from mass market. I mean, I had 15 years in mass market, eight of which were at Old Navy. So for me, it was all about maximize sales. I mean, I got really jazzed when we sold a million units of flag tees. That was like amazing. Um, <laughs> and, and, and you know, now I'm going into this brand that's basically telling me, you know, it's better when we don't sell that many handbags. I'm like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> How do you even make money? <laughs> you know, so it was a real mind, the mindset shift for me. So it was kind of part of the beginning thing that I had to learn how to do was let go of, all, or I, used, I call it unlearn, all the things that I had once learned. And then what comes after that? Because you were hired, obviously, because clearly something was missing, right? I mean, in every uh, hiring, yeah. Yeah. well, you know, it's a great company, but yeah. they saw this potential, and then you got to be the CEO there. Right. So there's something about, especially in a brand like this, there's so much to learn, right. so many rules probably. Yeah. Um, but then innovation means breaking those rules. So how did you navigate that yeah, in such a brand? It, it's really interesting. When you work for a heritage brand like Chanel, um, there is so much rich history, so much culture, and so many ways that you're supposed to do things. And it, it actually took me a long time because you have to build credibility in learning what you, you know, what you said, you learn the rules of the business, right? The things that, and, and you do have a lot of sacred cows. And I feel like for me, it was a lot about learning that, listening, sitting on, every, on everybody else's side of the table so I could understand things from their perspectives, even if I had an opinion right away about something. And then it was figuring out how to bend those rules and modernize the things that made the brand so famous. So, you know, in, in one of the examples of that, I mean, you, you all know Chanel, you all know everything that they do and all the modernity, but, you know, in more recent uh, years, or like recently, we had started a thing online called Inside Chanel, and that was telling the heritage and the story in a really contemporary way. We thought it was really modern, but we realized that today's customers, and you, you're a really good example of this at Ivy, you care about purpose. I mean, you care about community. And so we decided that it would be really interesting to do something called Outside Chanel, where we got women who embodied her spirit to, in today's world to actually talk to what they do. So it was, you know, it was things like that, where you're starting with something that is actually inherent in, in the brand and figuring out how to make it new and special for today's consumer. So the bigger lesson there is definitely, if you want to break the rules, really get to know them first. Mm -hmm. um, Right. You know, I, like I said, I loved jazz when I was in France, and I would watch these jazz musicians on stage, and they knew every single note. They knew their instrument by heart. But what made their music interesting was when they riffed. And when that riff happens, you know, when they go into improv improvisation, 
that's where the magic is created. But they don't go into improvisation without knowing how to play that instrument or without knowing the score. It's a great lesson. And um, so when it comes to especially being the CEO of such a large established company um, with so much, you know, I guess, so much that's there for you to build on, mm -hmm. but also so many challenges, you know, as the fashion industry changes, as there's so many evolving forces with things moving more and more online. Um, what do you believe were the key factors that enabled you to be an effective CEO in such a context? You know, it's so interesting when I took over the job initially, um, you know, I was about 43, so I was, I was pretty young, um, I think, for most CEOs, American, obviously, and I found myself at the head of a table of 10 men. Most of them were French. Uh, most of them were highly seasoned executives in the luxury industry, um, sometimes two decades of experience. Many of them had been at Chanel for two decades, and a lot of them were 10 years older than I was. So you can imagine how difficult that was to come in and say, so what do you do? You think, okay, I can kind of emulate the leaders I've seen, you know, and, and command and control the groups, you know, have a vision, set strategy, but that wasn't going to fly. I mean, it really wasn't going to fly because they had so much experience and so much depth of knowledge. So I actually had to use what many now call their feminine leadership skills. Now, I call them 21st century leadership skills because I think they're important for all of us all the time in today's world where we're interconnected and everything's both fragmented and interconnected actually by the, by, by the internet where we have a whole different um, social context as we had, than we had before. But anyway, I actually had to really kind of be vulnerable. I had to ask questions. I had to sit on their side of the table. I had to listen. So, and these were the things that actually helped me establish my credibility. So it was opposite of what you would think. And you would think you go in and I have a vision. And a lot of CEOs do that and that might be good for them or for their companies. But for me, I found my strength and my resources in tapping into what many call feminine leadership qualities. Let's dive into those. So feminine it. leadership qualities or 21st century yeah. uh, leadership qualities. What are they? Yeah, well, well let, let, I think I should set the scene a little bit because this is 2007. And um, in 2007, three major sort of things were going on, actually almost really four when you think about it. But um, I think Facebook started in something like 2006, I want to say. So was that right? It was before. It was uh, like before, right. uh, 2003. But 2006 was when it started. Anyway. That's when I graduated. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, you know, you guys are all making me feel really old. Um, but, you know, for us anyway, Facebook started to get, gain a lot of strength. Um, other social media was starting to come on the scene. Bloggers were the new experts in fashion. So, you know, all those magazines, all that you know, money we were spending on those beautiful advertisements, we didn't know where we were going to advertise anymore. Um, it, it, shopping, obviously, all the shopping was going online. Do you sell online if you're a luxury brand and does that dilute the brand? Not to mention counterfeiters all of a sudden have a worldwide canvas and secondary market or parallel market unauthorized sellers could sell your bags at half price. So uh, there was a huge amount of disruption just because of the internet. Then you had globalization and we had Chinese coming into our boutiques in droves. Now we love to have this high touch service so can you imagine trying to service your very special clients, when you have a massive amount of new clients coming in who you also want to give great service to. Very, very difficult. Then you had you guys. I mean, then you had millennials who actually had very different values 
very different ways of seeing the world, and not just as customers, but as employees. I mean, how do you deal with somebody who is born with a device in their hand versus you know, your older generation who isn't? And then I, I said four. The fourth thing was 2007 was just before the economic crisis. So um, it, we were on the brink of seeing the world basically due to the US marketing, uh, housing, um, house it, housing market collapse. Um, we, we were on the brink of a very difficult financial situation. So coming into that, I'm now I'm going on and on. I forgot my, your question in the meantime. Um, it was, was an incredible challenge. And so you asked about leadership. So I realized that what I had felt, you know, sitting at that table with the 10 men, how I'd felt was how actually we all felt in the face of this disruption. We had no idea what the future would bring. So I realized that the skills that I had been cultivating or the qualities I'd been cultivating were qualities that were necessary for all of us to begin to adapt. And you said, what are they? So I think listening, not just to you know, your, the, the guy sitting next to you, but to your customers, to the world around you, and especially to the teams inside the company, and especially to the newcomers. So I think listening, flexibility. I mean, we did not know what was going to happen the next day. Things were moving. And today, this is getting worse, by the way. And you, you can see what's going on with all the retailers. Flexibility. Being vulnerable, being able to admit when you were, didn't know something, being able to admit that things weren't going well when they weren't going well. Critical skill set, because this, we were in a fishbowl of transparency now with the internet. So if we made one mistake, everybody knew about it around the world. Um, empathy, really sitting in someone else's shoes. I mean, you can't get good ideas, I think, unless you drop playing the game face and kind of power playing. So these were the skills that I felt we needed to, to create the conditions for more innovation and creativity in the company. So listening, flexibility, vulnerability, empathy. Yeah. yeah. Okay. This is amazing because it's super inspiring to hear um, because it's not necessarily somebody imagining the CEO of Chanel. Not, they, that might not be the vision that they have yet. Yeah. You believe that especially in 2007 and now if anything, things are becoming more transparent, more right. purpose-driven. It's gotten way, way more extreme, yeah. Absolutely. So let's talk about, so you mentioned the fact that you know, it was you and 10 Frenchmen around the, the table. Yeah. <laughs> um, Not all French, yeah. most, I said. OK, well, yeah, so, but you know, it's, it's again, still, um, there are far too few women CEOs. Um, right. What have been the trends you know, over your career, and where do you things, uh, where do you see things heading when it comes to women and leadership? Yeah, I mean, sadly, there are still very, very few, as I'm sure you all know, women CEOs in this country anyway. I think it's 4%, and I'm pretty sure it's worse in France. Um, so I don't, here's, here's what I know. I'm, I hope that that's getting better, but I think, you know, I just talked about some of the qualities that I feel companies need to adopt. I also think one of the reasons we need to adopt those qualities is because we can talk about equity and pay, and that's important, and we have to get that right. We can talk about better policies and working, you know, work-life balance arrangements, and we have to get that better too, more flexible work arrangements. But if we don't start to expand the way we think about leadership, integrating, and I'm not saying letting go of all the quote-unquote if you want to call them masculine feminine, masculine qualities, you know, being driven, being ambitious, being focused. We don't want to get rid of those, but integrating some of those feminine qualities. I think it's hard for women to feel as comfortable and as natural and as confident as leaders. So I think it's a critical part of the work that we all need to do to get more women leaders to the top. 
and to support them there. Absolutely. Uh, do you have any um, practical advice for uh, women leaders? We have so many in the room today, many aspiring to do amazing, great things, many already doing incredible things. Right. What would be your advice as they're kind of tackling challenges in their career? You know, I, I don't give advice, but, um, you know. Maybe you have a story. No, I mean, you know, but everybody has a different issue and a different, but the way I look at it, and I think where I've been happiest, and the story about really the 10 men around the table is what I, what I ended up finding was, and being most comfortable in, was being who I was fully. And sometimes, and there are times you feel like you can't do that. But every time I betrayed myself, I was weaker. So every time I tried to wield the stick, say, and that I'm just not good at that, I felt out of integrity and I wasn't as good a leader. So finding that center, you know, finding, and I, I really do think it's by considering what you care most about, because you're not going to win every battle at work. I mean, impossible. And in fact, I don't like to think about it as battles, um, but you're not going to win every argument or anything, um, all the time, everything all the time. So it's really knowing what you do care about you know, what you're willing to go to the mat for, where you can make your mark, you know, where that mark is, is, is unique to you, and then what context you're in, and really playing with those three questions all the time. Yeah, that's a perfect uh, transition, actually, to uh, thinking about the question of, so a lot of the, the 21st century skill, leadership skills you talked about, these were still, you know, very much like, you know, how you deal with other people in the external world. But now you're saying one of the true, like, keys for you has been actually introspectively making well sure you're, you're being true to yourself. Well and, uh, you know, it's been four years since we launched Ivy. Uh, and we're now, we have a large team across the country, 100 people. And what we're finding oftentimes is, you know, it's one thing dealing with the challenges that are external. And then it's quite another to also then deal with the internal challenges yeah. uh, of leadership. Exactly. Um, so can we talk a little bit about that? Um, how do you keep centered? Very practically speaking, uh, some, before the event started, some people actually mentioned thinking like, I wonder how she you know, wakes up in the morning and what does she do all day? Yeah, no, you uh, asked me if I meditate. meditate Meditation is new for me. So I'm, 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 right, currently I said this the other day to a crowd, I got picked up in the press, but I, I really like TV. That's my meditation. No, but I think, no, I mean, <laughs> I, there's so many good shows on. Um, no, I, I, I think, I think, for me, it was, I, I was really fortunate. For one, I had a coach. Um, I had a coach that I, I had when I was at Gap, and the reason that the Gap gave us executive coaches were actually to grow us, not to, because we were some, there was some kind of behavioral issue. So I actually came, I hired my coach to stay with me, and to have someone who can provide a mirror. And I'll never forget one of the things that we used to work on a lot is that, you know, I, 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 listen, I am a listener. So I'll tend to take in everybody's opinion. And sometimes I'll lose my own, my own, I won't listen to myself. And she was really helpful for me in being a mirror to kind of bring me back to say, okay, but what do you think? You know, you, and, and we all get caught in this at work. You know, everybody's got an opinion and you get, you know, jigsaw, there are two things, you get like seesawed back and forth to different people's opinion. Sometimes it's just sort of saying, okay, I, I've heard all this, what do I think? And then how do I balance that? And I think on the other hand, sometimes we get stuck in our own opinion and it, because it's a political battle, because we want to win. And that's a good moment to say, why am I in this battle right now? Am I in this battle because I care a lot about what's going to happen or do I just want to win? 
what happens like after a particularly challenging battle where you're feeling, you know, tired, angry? <laughs> Let's say, and then you've cried. But what, how do you get back back into the mind? Because your mood as a leader impacts so massively the people around you. So how did you? Like a setback, yeah. That's a, that was a really hard thing for me, and it was a learned skill, and it took a lot of, I think, patience and a lot of conversations with my colleagues and with really at the time also with my coach. But um, that rebound, a lot of times I think, and this is going to sound a little strange, but this is my way of coping. So again, not a lesson, but my own way. You got to kind of get to the bottom of that, whether it's anger, whether it's sadness, whether it's disappointment, and be in it and not try to chase it away. Because when you try to chase it away too fast, you haven't actually gotten sort of through it. So I found that if I could sort of be in that for a while, think of all the reasons why I was getting so upset or so you know, aggravated, and then kind of go back to, why am I in this? You know, why am I doing this job? Why do I care? And get back to that, it, it, would, it would help me get over it. But you know, it was almost like over time I learned to that 24-hour turnaround. I used to call it, the other thing I used to teach people, and this was, this was actually a lesson, when, when I was at The Gap, we had voicemail. And you could leave a voice. No, people don't do voicemail anymore, but we had voicemail. That's how, it, now people do emails or texts. Now you guys all do texts, but, or whatever you do. Snapchat. You know, whatever. <laughs> I do all of it too. I mean, I like, I'm on social media now 24 seven. I can't believe it. I never thought that would happen. But, um, you know, so you're, you, you know, you, you get an email and then you, it was really easy to respond right away. And you would respond with anger or you respond with disappointment or whatever. And I, I used to say to everyone, you know what, give yourself, if you're really upset, give yourself the 24-hour rule, which basically means do not respond. Give yourself 24 hours. When you wake up the next day, you'll feel entirely differently. And it's, it's, it pretty much works all the time. That's my only piece of advice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you for that. Um, in terms of uh, introspection, so you wrote this amazing book called Beyond the Label. Yeah. Um, what led you to, yeah, let's give it, give it up. It's going to What was the inspiration? What got you to think, okay, I'm going to actually write a book? Um, and yeah. what, what would somebody get out of reading this book? Um, you know, I started the book because of this leadership work that I was doing at Chanel. We, we um, you know, based on all the things that I just told you about the qualities of leadership and the challenges that we had, we started, a, a, we called it the active and conscious leadership journey. And we called it a journey because I feel leadership is not something that you start and stop. It evolves all the time. Um, and we were getting amazing results. I mean, people were getting in touch with really their own purpose, linking that purpose to the company. Innovation started to get really moving during that time. And I felt like I wanted to share that because I don't think a lot of companies think about these, however you want to call them, 21st century feminine leadership qualities as a way to, to generate great business and great innovation. So I thought, I'll write an article tried to write the article. I could not get this article down to a reasonable amount of pages. And in the meantime, I met uh, an independent editor who started asking me questions. And I realized that actually I had a lot of other things that I wanted to share. And I had, I had benefited my entire career from great mentors. And um, I've also mentored so many people. And so much of that mentoring is just about conversations and storytelling and asking questions. It's not like you should do this, you should do that. It's just in conversation that well. I, what if I write a book that's a series of actually stories, questions, observations to share what I know? So that was really the impetus. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the Social University. 
We are the Grad School for Life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe and rate us on the podcast platform of your choice. Dream big and stay inspired.